Welcome back to the Foreign Policy Profcast. My name is Mark Melton. I am the managing editor of Providence. And today I am joined with Aiken Erdemir and Duba Tanyiri Erdemir, who are going to talk to us today about Turkey. And sorry, first off, if I'm butchering your pronunciations of your names. Could you uh, repronounce those for me? Aykan Erdemir. Tuba Tanyere Erdemir. Okay. And for listeners, you can uh, go back and listen to that. And that is ignore my pronunciation. So Aykan is a former member of the Turkish parliament and a senior director of the Turkey program at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, which is in D.C., and he is a member of the Anti-Defamation League's Task Force on Middle East Minorities and a steering committee member of the International Panel of Parliamentarians for Freedom of Religion or Belief. And uh, Tuba is a research associate at the University of Pittsburgh's Anthropology Department. She is also a coordinator of the Anti-Defamation League's Task Force on Middle East Minorities and the co-chair of the Middle East Working Group of the International Religious Freedom Roundtable. So first off, thank you so much for joining us today for the podcast. It's our pleasure. Thanks for having us. Like I said in the beginning, we are going to be talking about Turkey, and you have both written for Providence a couple of times, and uh, you have also written specifically about some of the you know, use sir, for the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. You have written about some reports they've done and um, about how the State Department uses those reports. Regular listeners will probably know some of this. We talked to Stephen Howard earlier this year about some of the same topics. But for those listeners who don't listen to every single podcast, could you kind of give a explanation of what USERF is and how it influences the U.S. foreign policy? Um, sure. Uh, let me kick off. Uh, USERF uh, is a, an independent uh, federal commission uh, established uh, with the International uh, Religious Freedom Act, and it has independent commissioners uh, and staff that monitor freedom of religion or belief around the world and issue annual reports. And both Tuba and I, uh, you know, since the very beginning of our academic careers, uh, have been uh, watching these reports very closely because it gives a, a, a quite an accurate assessment of how countries, governments are doing vis-a-vis -vis religious freedom. And Turkey, uh, as our listeners know, uh, is a, a unique case among NATO member states, that it is uh, the only one uh, that has been repeatedly singled out in USERF reports uh, for being in breach of uh, freedom of religion or belief. And uh, USERF has two categories to designate uh, the level of breach. So the most egregious violators uh, are designated as countries of particular concern, a CPC status. And then there is a second tier uh, designation, uh, which is now called a special watchless country. So USERF has been recommending the State Department to designate Turkey as a special watchlist country, as a second-tier country, while there are ongoing debates as to whether to bump Turkey up to the level of CPC, a country of particular concern. So Tuba and I have been recommending the State Department to follow USERF's recommendations to finally designate Turkey as a special watchlist country 
because we believe that this would send an important signal to Ankara to start improving uh, the prospects of Turkey's vulnerable religious minorities. Right. So the uh, what are some of the concerns? Like what is going on in Turkey? What are they doing against religious minorities? Like some uh, listeners will probably know about Pastor Bunsen, but what are some of the other concerns? And also my follow-up question to that is why is the State Department giving a free pass to Turkey on this? Um, let me start uh, actually. Uh, one of the, the report this year um, opens up with um, a mention of the uh, conversion of Hagia Sophia from a museum into uh, a functioning mosque. Um, and this was kind of, in 2020, this was a very crucial event uh, that illustrated in multiple ways um, how the country was reacting towards its both its own both its citizens and um, its non-Muslim citizens as well. Um, so the conversion of Hagia Sophia was a big event um, that was mentioned in the special watch list. The other thing that has been um, repeatedly included in the uh, USERF report uh, in the past years as well is the legal personality uh, for uh, religious minorities in Turkey. Um, uh, in the current legal status, the minorities don't have a legal personality which causes them uh, multiple problems uh, in sustaining the community. Um, the, they cannot, in, in the absence of this uh, legal protection, they cannot function to uh, choose their own leaders and um, take uh, critical decisions uh, in, um, in the communities for their own survival. Um, so those were some of the things that uh, stood out uh, in this year's report. During the time that the uh, Hagia Sophia was being converted into a mosque, I read some different articles and we, in Providence we ran some content that talked about Erdogan's use of the phrase remnants of the sword. So Tuba, would you like to describe like what Erdogan was meaning by that? Sure. Uh, let, me by, uh, let me start by just framing the conversation. Uh, the conversion of Hagia Sophia um, took place with an accompanying rhetoric by Turkish officials uh, that focused very much on the idea of conquest. Uh, that the, you know, uh, Type Erdogan during the opening ceremony uh, said Hagia Sophia's conversion would gratify the spirit of conquest of Mehmet II. Um, and uh, his uh, ultranationalist coalition partner Devlet Abahçeli uh, followed uh, him by saying that the course of Turco-Muslim conquest which had been ongoing for years has now entered a new phase um, and then uh, he also claimed uh, that the legal basis for converting Hagia Sophia rests on the right of the sword resulting from the Ottoman conquest which was kind of visually represented during the uh, opening ceremony of Hagia Sophia, the first Friday uh, prayers at the um, newly converted mosque, uh, by Ali Erbaş, the, director, uh, the head of Turkey's Directorate of Religious um, Affairs, who gave the first Friday sermon at Hagia Sophia with a sword at hand, which was also symbolizing the tradition of conquest. Um, this kind of followed on in the uh, ongoing weeks in which, for instance, Erdogan and Erdogan's um, 
Justice and Development Party accused Turkish citizens who opposed the conversion um, acting uh, acting like the Byzantines among us, um, calling them traitors. And uh, similarly, Bahçeli, his um, political partner, also referred to um, anybody who was in the opposition as remnants of the Byzantines and uh, you know, remnants of the sword. Remnants of the sword uh, goes back to um, actually the idea of genocide too. Uh, those who have not been killed by the sword are considered the remnants of the sword, the um, the minorities, those uh, who had been conquered. So, And I can, earlier this year, you wrote in Providence about some of Turkey's anti-Kurdish measures and how they violate the religious freedoms for Kurds in Turkey. And so first off, how does Turkey restrict the Kurdish language use in religious services? And also, how does that affect Christians? Now, this is uh, an issue which uh, often uh, was missed uh, by uh, religious freedom watchers in Turkey, uh, because this was an issue, you know, language rights uh, was deemed to be separate from freedom of religion or belief. In fact, when we take a look at Yusuf annual reports, we see that this issue hasn't been mentioned so far, and we're hoping that this will be included next year following this Providence piece, and we have been discussing this issue with uh, uh, Yusuf staffers uh, as we speak. Uh, so the issue is Turkey, since the early Republican era, has had various legal and you know, de facto uh, restrictions on the use of the Kurdish language, uh, either officially or uh, in public spaces. And uh, although uh, beginning in the 2000s, there has been a, a significant relaxation uh, on those restrictions, following Erdogan's coalition partnership with Turkey's ultra-nationalist party, uh, namely the, Na the Nationalist Action Party, MHP, uh, we have seen uh, a return of some of those restrictions. Now, what most observers miss is that when you uh, bring restrictions uh, to using Turkey's second most spoken language, namely Kurdish, you are also introducing uh, religious freedom restrictions uh, on Turkey's Kurdish, Christians, and Muslims. Now, demographically, 99% of Kurds uh, are Muslim. Most of them are Sunni Muslim. Some of them are Alevi Muslim, you know, a non-conforming uh, Muslim community in Turkey. But then there are also Protestant Kurds, uh, uh, you know, a, a subset of uh, over 5,000 Protestants uh, who have converted uh, over the last few decades. Now, when, uh, for example, a Kurdish imam is not able to provide a sermon, a Friday sermon in Kurdish, or when a Kurdish Protestant uh, is accused of, you know, treason or terrorism charges uh, for uh, simply being a Kurdish speaking Kurdish and a Christian, then uh, this issue becomes not only a language rights issue, but also a religious freedom issue. And uh, hence, uh, you know, it is 
uh, my hope uh, that through this providence piece, uh, we will begin to see uh, you sort of raising this issue as a, a as yet another one of the egregious religious freedom violations in Turkey uh, that uh, Turkey's Christians and Muslims do not have the legal right to worship as they wish and in the language they wish and in the ways they see fit. Uh, and uh, for our audience members who might have a difficult time conceptualizing what kind of pressure the Turkish government might be uh, you know, uh, putting on these individuals, uh, for example, there has been a number of Kurdish imams uh, who have been either jailed uh, or banned from attending mosques simply for delivering sermons in Kurdish. And often uh, anti-terrorism uh, law has been used to bring charges against them. And uh, one figure that we are all familiar with, Pastor Andrew Brunson, uh, who spent almost two years in a Turkish prison, uh, was also accused uh, for the work he did with Kurdish Protestants in Turkey. In fact, some of the charges uh, involved the use of uh, Kurdish Bibles uh, or sermons in Kurdish, and again, connecting such practices to an act of terrorism. Uh, and hence, uh, this is the way in which uh, the current Turkish government criminalizes either the use of Kurdish or uh, non-confirming Muslims or Christians in Turkey. In that piece, and I know Tuba mentioned earlier the organization called, if I'm pronouncing it correct, the Dianet, which is the the Directorate of Religious Affairs. Um, how do you pronounce that again? Dianet. Yeah. Dianet. And uh, so, what role does that organization play in the Turkish government, especially in relation to the religious freedom issue? So, um, Turkey's Dianet, uh, namely the Directorate of Religious Affairs. Uh, is really a, a very difficult institution to fully grasp. Uh, it has over 130,000 civil servants, all on state's payroll, and they have a monopoly on providing uh, religious services in Turkey to the Muslim population. So in a way, an institution which was originally devised to control religion uh, has become also now a tool for Erdogan's domination uh, of the Turkish public at large and uh, exclude or put pressure on non-conforming ways of practicing Islam. Now, Turkey's Christians and Jews are, and other non-Muslims who pay taxes and therefore actually, you know, sponsor Dianet's activities and functions, actually do not receive any services from the Dianet. Hence, uh, this has uh, always been uh, an issue of discrimination and unequal treatment as well. And, uh, you know, over the course of the Republic, there has been several attempts to turn Dianet into an inclusive uh, religious body that oversees religious services. Uh, and uh, this has met with uh, enormous pushback uh, by uh, not only Turkey's uh, you know, uh, Islamist political parties, but also uh, by many of the 
uh, observant Sunni Muslims as well. So one could even argue that this institution is now a relic of, in a way, uh, the Ottoman idea of you know, the Sunni Muslim supremacy and domination uh, over uh, you know, the, the nation. And that definition of a Turkish nation ends up being exclusionary, ends up being discriminatory, uh, since uh, you know, non-conforming Muslims such as Alevis, as well as Christians and Jews, are then reduced to a second class of citizenship, where they might be tolerated, but are not granted the same citizenship rights as the Sunni Muslim majority. Um, if I can build up on that, uh, the you know uh, increasing the idea of increasing supremacy and ex- exclusion and discrimination, uh, we can partially see that um, also in how um, Turkey treats its uh, cultural heritage of minority uh, faith groups, um, and in that uh, I have always been somebody who saw great potential um, in uh, religious cultural heritage as part of uh, building um, peace and amends making. And there have been some attempts at doing that. But at the same time, uh, some of these attempts uh, foster uh, or perpetuate uh, the um, supremacy and exclusion uh, idea within itself. Let me elaborate. Uh, For instance, uh, the Turkish government uh, over the last decade uh, have restored several uh, Greek Orthodox and uh, Armenian um, religious heritage monuments. Uh, the most famous ones uh, are the Sumela Monastery and uh, Akdamar Church in Van. Sumela Monastery being a Greek Orthodox uh, monastery in the Black Sea region, and Akdamar uh, is um, a wonderfully beautiful Armenian monastic complex uh, built on an island in uh, Lake Van in eastern Turkey. And both of these sites uh, are very nicely restored, um, and the government uh, hosts uh, liturgy at these sites one day per year. Those liturgies uh, literally live in and make these sites uh, very lively and beautiful and brings together not only uh, the uh, members of the faith of Greek, Greek Orthodox and Armenian uh, worshippers, but, um, you know, Muslim Turks, uh, others, and it kind of builds uh, a beautiful uh, event in which we can think of, you know, of, um, people getting together um, and in a more pluralistic uh, way. But on the other hand, uh, we always remember that these monuments are restored as museums, as cultural um, sites, not as living, actual worship halls. Um, and I'd like to contrast that with the example of Serp Giragos, uh, an Armenian church that was uh, restored again over the last decade in Diyarbakir in southeast Turkey. Uh, but this time it was different because the Armenian, uh, the small Armenian community living in Diyarbakir and the uh, Armenian community uh, whose roots go back to Diyarbakir who are now based in Istanbul, 
um, took up the restoration project with the help and uh, support of the local uh, HDP um, municipality. Um, and that was a very different project because now the site was restored as a functioning church. It became um, it it was under the, uh, it was fully under the control and ownership of the Serpiragos Church Foundation. So the Armenian community had the ownership of uh, the church. Um, and when you had uh, baptisms, weddings, um, Easter's, and uh, liturgy in there. That had a different feeling in which it was completely inclusionary that the the faith community had control over not only the site but what goes within this what goes on within the site um so that was um a positive development uh which kind of uh was different than what the Turkish government tried to do. What Turkish government was trying to do, as Icon was saying, uh, followed the Ottoman framework in which, you know, um, a Sunni Muslim dominating power granted um, a favor to a minority. Uh, whereas the in the Serp Gyrgios church, we see that it is the ownership of the community that provides the um, context in which peace building happens. And I know that you talked about, or I believe, if I remember correctly, you talked about those um, locations during an event with the In Defense of Christians and talking about the religious sites for minorities. Like, so within the broader community and also for those groups, like what role do those sites play for those people? They are actually emotionally important sites. Um, if you think about uh, the Armenian community in Turkey, um, what we have are people who survived uh, the 1915 genocide. And a great deal of that community is now globally dispersed. Uh, so for the Armenians living in Turkey, as well as the millions of Armenians now globally dispersed, they still have a very strong connection to their religious sites in Turkey. And that is very important uh, because it's, uh, you know, wherever you live, in the world, having your roots back and your, you know, your community's roots back in Turkey is very important. Um, in that, uh, the Turkish government, of course, have a responsibility to save and protect these sites um, for future generations. Uh, but the trend has been um, quite the negative uh, that uh, for uh, for over a century, most of these sites have been neglected. A lot of them have disappeared, uh, you know, consciously attacked, uh, and but also, you know, uh, due to uh, non-maintenance, kind of disappeared as well. And having those sites in this geography is a very important reminder of the presence of these communities in here, wherever they are in the world. Um, so, uh, in that respect. Having that emotional connection, keeping um, those sites and preserving them for future generations reminds us of the very uh, multi-ethnic, multi-religious uh, past of these lands. Uh, so in that respect, it's very important. But also for our future, um, in order to build a pluralistic and inclus inclus inclusivist uh, future, these sites can play a very important role. 
And if I may build on that, so uh, for the Turkish government, um, the, the, the main shortcoming is this. Instead of um, granting equal citizenship rights to Turkey's Christians and Jews, uh, you know, allowing them to obtain legal status and manage their own community affairs, acquire property, elect their religious leaders without any state intervention. The Turkish government turns to these spectacles of tolerance, uh, you know, restoration of a few token sites, uh, opening them as museums or cultural centers, then holding liturgy for global audiences one day a year, and hoping that this solves all the other problems. And this is a really, I think, um, the main shortcoming uh, of the Erdogan government's approach to the whole religious freedom issue. So they believe these spectacles of tolerance, a few benevolent acts, can uh, secure uh, solve all of Turkey's ongoing religious freedom problems uh, without realizing that the actual uh, issue at hand is to institutionalize equality, you know, pluralism, and an inclusive ethos. So uh, every time uh, one sees one of these, you know, uh, restored churches or synagogues or monasteries uh, which are showcased by the Turkish government, uh, one should actually uh, start thinking, what is it that these spectacles are hiding? What religious freedom violations uh, does the Turkish government sweep under the carpet through these spectacles? If I can give one recent example, um, it, an Armenian church was recently restored in uh, Malatya. Um, and um, it it hosted a liturgy last week on the 29th of August, um, which is wonderful, you know. Uh, but if you read between the lines on what happened, uh, the name of this church is uh, Surp Yerror Tutun, um, and uh, the it was restored by the Turkish government. During the opening ceremony, uh, which was attended by multiple um, government dignitaries as well as the Armenian patriarch, um, it was very clearly stated that this is a cultural center. We're opening this as a cultural center. But the Armenian community can host weddings, baptisms, and liturgies if and when authorities um, grant permit. Um, so this is, uh, I think, an interesting development, especially um, in the aftermath of last year's uh, last year uh, when the United States acknowledged the Armenian genocide. And um, maybe we could read this as a move on Turkey's part to show um, to the world as a spectacle uh, of tolerance that here is an Armenian church that we restored. And yes, people can um, use, uh, the Armenian community can use it um, in certain times if we grant them permissions. Uh, again, making them um, obedient citizens um, who follow their lead. And to kind of close this out here, so right now we're recording this so that listeners know on August 31st. And uh, for the past couple of weeks, Afghanistan has been in the news. And so my question to whichever, one of y'all want to answer 
like how do the events in Afghanistan affect Turkey? Because I assume that we're going to start seeing refugees, um, including religious minorities, fleeing Afghanistan, headed toward Europe and Turkey in those directions. And so how, you know, whether it's refugees or other issues, how does what happened in Afghanistan affect Turkey? So the developments in Afghanistan uh, has had multiple impacts on Turkey's domestic and foreign policy. On the domestic front, uh, given Turkey already has 3.6 million Syrian refugees, uh, the prospects of a, a new Afghan refugee wave uh, has, have uh, spiked uh, the anti-refugee sentiment across the Turkish public spectrum. Uh, in fact, we have even seen uh, some attacks targeting existing refugee populations in Turkey. So this is one of the worrying developments. But at the same time, on the international front, we have seen, uh, again, another worrying development. And that is, early on, uh, the Biden administration turned to the Erdogan government uh, as a potential partner uh, in securing and running the Kabul International Airport. Now, I have written a few pieces during this period, you know, since June, uh, that this might not be the best idea, that the Biden administration should approach the Erdogan government with caution. And in fact, uh, we have seen uh, that since the fall of Afghanistan uh, to the Taliban, uh, that Erdogan has taken a U-turn. You know, he has now turned to the Taliban, uh, has ongoing negotiations with them uh, to assist them uh, in running the airport. And uh, during this time, uh, there has been a public outroar uh, in Turkey uh, about, you know, Ankara's close association with the Taliban. Because uh, for Turkey's pro-secular anti-Erdogan uh, health, uh, you know, Turkey should not be assisting the Taliban uh, and Erdogan should not be appeasing the Taliban. Uh, and I think um, one of the take-home uh, lessons uh, for the Biden administration and for, uh, you know, other global audiences here is that uh, be careful when you are trying to cut a deal with Erdogan because he will extract all the financial and diplomatic concerns given he doesn't necessarily share the same values with Turkey's NATO allies, uh, he can you know, flip overnight and start working with key adversaries uh, of uh, the United States and other NATO allies. And uh, we have also seen this elsewhere. You know, Turkey uh, has facilitated Iran's sanctions evasion. Uh, Turkey has an ongoing, uh, you know, um, a mechanism, diplomatic mechanism with Iran and Russia in Syria, uh, and Turkey has supported, uh, you know, radical Islamists from Hamas to Muslim Brotherhood elsewhere. Uh, so this is a, a problematic NATO member state under Erdogan, and the next time a U.S. administration or the European Union, for that matter, uh, wants to turn to Erdogan as a security partner as a foreign policy partner, uh, it's best if they think twice before taking any steps. Well, 
Thank you very much for both of you joining us today on the Provcast. And for listeners, uh, be sure to check out our website where we will have links to the articles discussed here. And then you can also follow both of them on Twitter, which will also be linked onto the website. But thank you so much for joining us today and talking about these topics. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you.